How the Tigers doing, Phil? They are. I wonder if uh, Mississippi State. I wonder if Mississippi State will end up facing them in the championship. Good old SEC. Probably not. I'd go for the Tigers. I'd go for the Tigers. Guys, we're going to go ahead and get started this morning. I know more people will probably be filing in. We've got some content to, to get through this morning. Uh, today, we are concluding our five-part mini-series. Hey, Miss Jean, welcome back. Uh, engage the culture through the lens of Genesis. And so this is the last one. Um, next Sunday, we're resuming our study in the book of Genesis. And we'll just pick right back up there. So I hope you guys continue to come and learn about God's Word, especially about the book of Genesis. hope you've seen that it is foundational to not only understanding our beliefs, our Christian beliefs, but also to engaging cultural issues. It speaks to cultural issues in every way. And today we're going to be talking about the issue of Islam. The title of this morning's message is engaging Islam through the lens of Genesis. And if you grab some notes, you probably saw also next to the notes a little quiz here I typed up for you guys. This is just for fun. This is not a grade. You're not turning this in. But I want us to take one minute. I've got six questions here. Take one minute and each of us pull out a pen, go through this, circle whatever answer you think is correct, just to sort of see what we know about Islam, what we're thinking. These are just a few questions here. Um, so what we'll do is we'll go ahead and start that now. So let's take one minute to answer these questions. About what Muslims actually believe. This reality is also heightened by all the political tensions around the world. So this morning, here's what we want to do. I want to equip you to know some core beliefs about Islam so we can more effectively engage Islam. When we clear, this morning's message is not about being concerned with Islam as a geopolitical movement. It's about being concerned with Muslims as individuals, as neighbors, as men and women who are outside of Christ and who desperately, desperately need a savior. It's not about what's happening in the, new, in the news about Muslims. If you're paying attention to the news, Islam is everywhere. This message is about what is happening in the souls of Muslims. In other words, we're not about winning arguments this morning. This morning is about winning hearts of Muslims. So here's what we're going to look at. We're going to seek to answer four questions this morning. Four questions that will help us better understand what Islams believe at the core of their religion, and also how Christianity differs from that. So the four questions are this. Number one, what do Muslims believe about God? Number two, what do Muslims believe about humanity and sin? Number three, what do Muslims believe about Jesus Christ? And number four, what do Muslims believe about salvation? And how do these beliefs differ from what we believe as Christians? So that's what we're covering this morning. What do Muslims believe about God, about humanity and sin, about Jesus Christ, and about salvation? Let's pray, and we'll get started. Father, we see in your word that your agenda is nothing less 
than people from every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would unite our hearts to that agenda, unite our lives to that mission, Lord. Equip us this morning to engage our Muslim neighbors and our Muslim friends with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the truth of your word, that they may worship Jesus. That is our prayer. Lord, that is our hope. May our hearts long to see that. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start up front and just point you guys to a resource I have over here on the table. Um, I have a little article. It's called 10 Things Every Christian Should Know About Islam. It's a very helpful, quick look at 10 Things Every Christian Should Know About Islam. You can pick that up afterwards. And also three books I would recommend as well are sitting there. Okay, so point one, what do Muslims believe regarding God? If there is one thing a Muslim believes, it is the fact that there is one God. In fact, the cardinal confession of Islam is there is only one God and Muhammad is his messenger. This is a doctrine every Muslim is required to believe. In order for anyone to become a Muslim, he or she must publicly repeat this confession. This confession, it's called the Shahada. I've got that in your notes there. It's just this, this personal statement, right? It's making a personal profession that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is the prophet of Allah. One God. This is fundamental to Muslim belief. Norman Geisler stresses the importance of this confession when he says, This is the motto of the Muslim families of the Muslim's family life. The ritualistic formula that welcomes the infant as a believer, and the final message that is whispered in the ear of the dying. By repeating these words, the unbeliever is transformed into a Muslim and the backslider welcomed back into a spiritual brotherhood. By this creed, the faithful are called to prayer five times daily. And it is the platform on which all the warring sects of Islam unite. This last sentence. It is the very foundation of the Islamic religion. This is a big deal to Muslims, that God is one. It's their entire theological system, philosophy, and religious life is summed up in the reality that there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the prophet of Allah. At its core, Islam is a monotheistic, unitarian religion, a religion of one God, and that one God being one person. Monotheistic, unitarian religion. It's a religion of Tawheed, that's another term I've got there in your notes, that refers to the pure, radical, absolute unity of God. This is near and dear to the Muslims' heart and their theological system of beliefs. The absolute unity of God is the cornerstone of Muhammad's message. I've got a surah there in your notes as well. Surah 112, that's a chapter in the Quran. A surah is a chapter, and it says this, In the name of God, most gracious, most merciful, say, He is God, the one and only God, the eternal absolute. He begetteth not, nor is he begotten, and there is none like unto him. God being one is such a fundal, fundamental aspect of Islam that one Muslim author writes, in fact, Islam, like other religions before it in their original clarity and purity, is none other, is nothing other than the de declaration and unity of God. And its message is a call to testify to this unity. And it's the message. It's a call to testify to the fact that God is one. 
Another Muslim writer expresses a similar point here. He says, the unity of Allah is the distinguishing characteristic of Islam. This is the purest form of monotheism, i.e., the worship of Allah, who is neither begotten nor beget nor had any associates with him in his Godhead. Islam teaches this is the most Islam teaches this in the most unequivocal of terms. Now, because of this uncompromising emphasis on God's absolute unity in Islam, the greatest sin, the greatest sin a Muslim could ever commit, it's called the sin of shirk. That is to assign partners to God. It's shirking the idea that God is one. And it's saying there's more than just a monotheistic Unitarian God. The Quran clearly and sternly declares, God forgiveth not the sin of joining other gods with him, but he forgiveth who he pleaseth other sins than this. I think this is the Quran, King, King James Version here we're reading. <laughs> One who joins other gods with God hath strayed far, far away from the right. Shirk is the unforgivable sin to the Muslim. Nothing can be more dishonoring to God than to assign partners to him. Now, if a person does confess the shahada, what we talked about at the beginning, if a Muslim does do that before death and shirk can be forgiven, but only then if it's, if it's not confessed and you die assigning other partners to God, you are, will not have any forgiveness. So when it comes to God, here's what we must understand. What do Muslims believe about God? What we must understand is that according to Muslim belief, there is no God but Allah. And that God is one. So what about Christians? In some ways, Christianity is similar to Islam in its thinking about God and his revelation of himself. Like Muslims, Christians believe in many of the same attributes of God. We do. Believe in many of the same attributes of God. We agree that God is sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent, merciful, just, holy, righteous, benevolent, and so on. We both depend on sacred texts wherein God discloses himself and his will to mankind as well. Right? Christians have the Bible. Muslims have the Quran. And interestingly, I'll, I'll say this. Even the Quran, guys, affirms that the Bible is itself revelation from God. It does. I've got a couple reference surahs in your notes there, but here's what they say. First, it, one of them says that the book which Moses brought in Surah 691, right? That's referring to the Torah. The second one says in Surah 1755, refers to the gift of the Psalms that are from David. So the Psalms of David. And then in Surah 5, 46 through 47, refers to the gospel that Jesus brought. So the Quran affirms that the Torah the Psalms of David and the Gospels from Jesus are indeed revelations from the Bible. But here's, what, here's what's interesting about that. Since Islam affirms the Torah, Psalms of David, and the Gospels as revelations from God, then therefore, and this, we don't see this happening, but this is the logic, therefore, intellectually honest Muslims must also accept how God reveals himself in the Bible. If the Quran is truth and perfection 
and there's no faults in it, and it affirms these books of the Bible, then shouldn't Muslims also intellectually agree, okay, that's how God reveals himself in the Bible, but they don't. It's inconsistent. And here's what they sternly and firmly disagree with, and this is the heart of the difference between us and our Muslim friends, and that is the triune nature of God. The Bible reveals that God is triune. He's not Unitarian. He's a triune God. This is the key difference between the God of Islam and the God of Christianity. The God of Islam and the God of Christianity, they're not the same God. It's not even close. There are many books, there's a lot of scholarship out there that is arguing otherwise. But we see that they are not the same God. Though we, like Muslims, believe God is one in his being, Christians do not believe that he is one in person. That's the difference. Rather, we hold that God is one in being, right? God is monotheistic, but yet he's three in person. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches there are three persons within the Godhead. I can't spend a lot of time here, but basically it says each person is fully God and that there is one God. That's the doctrine of the Trinity, and it stands at the heart of the difference between Islam and Christianity. So while Muslims agree that with the Christian affirmation that there is one God, they maintain that belief in three persons compromises the unity of God and makes Christianity functionally tritheistic. It's like a three-headed God. Thus they protest that the Trinity is neither biblical nor intelligible. Yet as we said, in order to do this, they must twist their own scriptural texts. And to be consistent, they must reject their own view of the revelation of the Quran to God. There's, there's more to say. Uh, I just want to say very clearly, Muslims do not describe to the doctrine of the Trinity. That is the difference. And, and here's what is important as we engage Islam, guys. Anytime you're talking to a Muslim about the Trinity, it is essential that you cling to the Trinity. It is a critical doctrine. Here's several reasons. First, it's how God re revealed himself to us in the Bible. Right? Right from the start, in the book of where? Genesis. Imagine that. Book of Genesis. God reveals himself as a plurality of persons. Right? Look at Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3 with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So there's God, there's the Spirit of God. And then verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. There's the spoken word of God, which we learn in the Gospel of John. Logos is Jesus. He is the Word, the eternal Word of God. You see the Father, the Logos, and the Spirit of God working together in the creation of the world. We also hear God say in regards to creation of man, right? We looked at this text last Sunday, in Genesis 1, 26, 27. He says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. It's a plurality of persons there. Genesis presents us with a triune 
God. And we see that even more clearly revealed as the progressive nature of the revelation of Scripture is given to us in the New Testament. When we look through the lens of Genesis, we do not see a monotheistic Unitarian God, but rather a monotheistic Trinitarian God. Another reason we must cling to the Trinity is because to deny the Trinity is essentially to commit idolatry. It's to make God into the image we want him to be, rather than how he's revealed himself to us. And another part, another reason why we should cling to the Trinity is that apart from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's no possibility of eternal salvation. If we surrender on the Trinity, we, in effect, deny the gospel because each person in the Godhead plays an essential role in our salvation. The Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Apart from His election, there's no rescue of sinners. God the Son secures our redemption through His blood, providing forgiveness of sins. Apart from His sinless sacrifice, there would be no atonement for our sins. The God-man alone offers the sacrifice without blemish that is able to purify us and satisfy the Father. And God the Spirit produces in the sinner the miraculous work of new birth. And by Him we are sealed and preserved for the day of our complete redemption. Our, only our triune God, guys, can save. When a Muslim calls upon the name of Allah, though he is sincere, he's calling to a deaf God, a God that does not hear and a God that does not save. Thabidiyanya Bwile comments in his book, The Gospel for Muslims, Muslims and Christians agree that God is holy, just, righteous, and our judge. But our Muslim friends do not understand that the whole, do not understand that that holy, just, and righteous judge is none other than the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Unless they come to see this, they will enter eternity and be stunned with eternal grief to find waiting there the Son of God, whom they rejected in this life. Only those who call upon the name of the triune Lord, who call upon the name of the triune God of the Bible, guys, will be saved. He's the, the true God, and we must long for our Muslim friends to call upon His name. Only, only our triune God can give life. Every other God only brings death. Allah cannot save, He cannot save humans from the problem of sin. He can't do that. Which leads to the next question. Number two, what, do, what does Islam believe about humanity and sin? Author and pastor Thabidi Anubuile, I just read a quote from him. He tells this story when he was debating some Muslim scholars that reveals just how much Christians and Muslims differ regarding sin and humanity. He says this, Recently, I was at a debate with, Muslim, with two Muslim apologists. In both instances, a questioner raised the issue of man's creation and the existence of sin. And in both cases, my jaw fell into my lap at the response from my Muslim counterparts and that, what they gave to that question. In the first debate, the Muslim apologists asserted that Christians did not understand the Genesis account of Adam and Eve's creation. Christians just don't get that, the Muslim apologist asserted. He insisted that Adam 
And for that matter, no prophet of God. Remember, if you're here in the beginning, we saw Adam's a prophet. Adam, and for that matter, no prophet of God has ever sinned. They may have made some mistakes, he conceded. (laughs) But the prophets, the prophets are free from sin, according to Islam. In the second debate, the young Muslim squirmed as he explained that God does not require perfection from us because he made us with a serious flaw. He made us with a weakness. Again, a pensive hush fell over the crowd as they pondered the implications of this statement. Those are serious implications. The BD goes on, he says, I asked for clarification. Are you saying that God made us sinners? Again, the squirming. I'm saying, he replied, that it is unfair for God to make us this way and expect perfection from us. Therefore, God must not expect perfection from people he made this way. While Muslims and Christians agree that man is a created being who owes worship and obedience to God, they differ in their view of man and sin. Big time. Here's a couple ways. Let's talk about first the creation of humans. Muslims reject the idea that humans are created in God's image and after his likeness. Allah announces in Surah 230, And mention, O Muhammad, when your Lord said to the angels, Indeed, I will make upon earth a vice-regent. They said, will you place upon it one who causes corruption therein and sheds blood while we declare your praise and sanctify you? Allah said, indeed, I know that which you do not know. Then in 32.9, and these should be in your notes, we read that he proportioned him, man, and breathed into him from his created soul and made for you hearing and vision and hearts. Little are you grateful According to Muslims, at creation, man was endowed with certain faculties, but he was not created in the image and the likeness of God. Man is merely a vice regent, created with qualities that allow him to submit to Allah's will. That's why he received those qualities, so that he could submit to Allah's will. As one scholar notes, the Christian witness that man is created in the image and likeness of God is not the same as the Muslim witness. Although God breathed into man his spirit for Islam, the only divine quality that was entrusted to man as a result of God's breath was the faculty of knowledge, will, and power of action. If man uses these divine qualities rightly in understanding God and following his law strictly, then he has nothing to fear in the present or the future and no sorrow for the past. In other words, Islam teaches that Allah is wholly other than his creation, Nothing in creation, including human beings, share in his likeness or glory. Christians, however, believe that God created humanity in his own image and after his own likeness. Where do we find that? You like that, Peter? I love this class. As we learned last Sunday, because humans are made in the image of God, man is invested with immeasurable dignity, which provides the basis for social ethics in regards to how we speak to one another, 
all the way to the reality that we should not murder one another because we're created in the image of God. Another way Muslims differ from Christians regarding sin and humanity is seen in the reality that, you probably picked up on this earlier, that Muslims deny the doctrine of original sin. Muslims believe that God forbade Adam and Eve to, uh, to approach and partake of a particular tree in the garden, though it's nameless, and that soon after Adam and Eve entered the garden, Satan began his mission to lead humankind astray. The account is a little similar to the Genesis account, but radically different. Look in your notes at Surah 7, 20 through 25 for the account of what happened. Then began Satan to whisper suggestions to them, bringing openly before their minds all their shame, all their shame that was hidden from them before. He said, Your Lord only forbade you this tree, lest ye should become angels or such beings as live forever. And he swore to them both that he was their sincere advisor. So by deceit, he brought about their fall. When they tasted of the tree, their shame became manifest to them, and they began to sue together the leaves of the garden over their bodies. And their Lord called unto them, Did I not forbid you that tree and tell you that Satan was an avowed enemy unto you? They said, listen to this, Our Lord, we have wronged our own souls, if, if thou forgive us not and bestow not upon us thy mercy, we shall certainly be lost. Allah said, descend, being to one another enemies, and for you on earth is a place of settlement and enjoyment for a time. He said, therein you will live and therein you will die, and from it you will be brought forth. It sounds very similar to the Christian account, but it is very, very different in some very important ways. Norman Geisler notes this about the passage. In Christian theology, man's disobedience is viewed as a fundamental turning point in his relation to God. According to Muslim perspective, however, this was only a single slip on Adam and Eve's part that was completely forgiven after their repentance and had no further effect on the nature of man and the rest of creation. Just a slip. Concerning the significant gap between Christian and Muslim understanding of the fall, another scholar writes this. It's in your notes there. The Christian witness that the rebellion by our first parents has tragically distorted man and that sinfulness pervades us individually and collectively is very much contrary to Islamic witness. Islam teaches that the very first phase of life on earth did not begin in sin and rebellion against Allah, Although Adam disobeyed Allah, he repented and was forgiven and even given guidance for mankind. Remember, he was a prophet. This last sentence there is important. Look at this. Man is not born a sinner, and the doctrine of the sinfulness of man has no basis in Islam. When you're talking to a Muslim, the doctrine of sin has no basis for them in Islam. Basically, Adam is said to have made an ethical mistake and even if, he wa even if it was considered a sin, Muslims think unjust the idea that one person's sins should be accounted to another person in any way. There goes the doctrine of the imputation of sin. 
Muslims also maintain that when one does commit a sin, he or she only does evil to him or herself, and that that sin is not offensive to God. Remember what we read in the account? We've offended our own souls. It's not about our offense against God. Chalkat Makari, got a quote in your notes. He summarizes the Islamic understanding. He writes this, Islam teaches that our sins cannot offend our Creator, who stands too far above us to be directly concerned by our disobedience. Another important issue involved here is that according to Muslims, said this already, the prophets of God are either totally sinless or at least protected from major sins or shortcomings. And since in Islam, Adam is recognized as the first major prophet to humankind, it follows that Adam must have been spared from committing a major sin. How could God entrust such a high office to an evildoer? They think. Obviously, the Bible teaches that Adam, who represents all of humanity, committed the first sin when he broke God's command not to eat of the tree of knowledge and good and of evil. Where do we find that? Genesis 2, 16 through 17 and 3. We learn that when Adam committed that sin, all of humanity fell into sin with him. The verse Romans 5.12 says this, Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men, because all sinned. Adam's sin was imputed to all of humanity. He's humanity's representative before God. He plunged all of humanity into sin with him and into God's condemnation of all men as well. Christians believe that Adam's sin profoundly corrupted the nature of mankind so that man not only sins, but by his very nature, he is a sinner. And sin, guys, we know, it is a terrible offense against the holy God. It's not an offense against ourselves. It's an offense against God, our maker. It's not something to rest lightly upon our consciences. It's so serious that the only thing that could atone for sin and assuage the wrath of God toward us is the sacrifice of his only son. All those who die in their sins, never having repented of them and sought forgiveness through faith in Christ, will be eternally judged for their sins. We must remember this as we engage Islam. We must press home the point of sin and guilt graciously and clearly. It's not about winning and losing debates with our Muslim neighbors. We don't need to engage in a contest, but in a battle for their souls. We must lovingly make Muslims aware of the true horrors of sin, wrath, judgment, and eternal torment. And only then will they see just how necessary and amazing and gracious the grace of God truly is. I think as Islam, as we said earlier, it's becoming the second largest religion in the West, second fastest growing, more and more becoming neighbors with Muslims. And if they're not convinced of their sin, they're not convinced of their need for a Savior. We know only God can do this work. But as we see our Muslims, we must see them as men and women who are lost. That must be the first reality that grips our hearts. We must tell them of a Savior, which leads to 
Question number three. What do Muslims believe regarding Jesus Christ? What do Muslims believe about Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus? This is a crucial question every one of us must answer, right? When Jesus posed the question to his disciples in Matthew 16, 15, who do you say that I am? He wasn't asking a trivia question, right? It's not like the questions on the quiz we took earlier. Rather, Jesus was asking a question that divided and determined eternity for everyone. Whether we spend eternity in heaven or in hell facing God's wrath depends on how we answer the question, who is Jesus? So how do, how do Muslims answer this question? Interestingly, Muslims often say they're part of the second largest religion that teaches people to believe in Jesus. They'll say that. They can say that. They believe he's a prophet. It's not true belief because it's not belief in who Jesus has truly revealed himself to be. It's belief in Jesus as a prophet. According to the Quran, Jesus was merely a human being who was chosen by God as a prophet and sent for the guidance of the people of Israel. The verdict is clearly summarized in Surah 575. Christ, the son of Mary, was no more than an apostle. Many were the apostles that passed away before him. His mother was a woman of truth. They had both to eat their daily food. It's true Muslims do respect Jesus, but they do not believe in the true Jesus. They don't even believe he's the most superior prophet. Muhammad is that. The Quran tells that Jesus came to foretell the coming of the final and great prophet Muhammad. Most significantly, both the Quran and the universal opinion of Muslims vehemently insist that Jesus is not the divine Son of God. Right? We saw that earlier on the quiz question. They do not believe in the divinity of Jesus. They do not believe that he is the Son of God. He is a Son of God, yes. But he's not God the Son. You see the difference? They do not believe in his divinity. Muslims deny the, the deity of Jesus Christ, maintaining that he's merely a human prophet and a long line of other prophets. Yet in Scripture we read, we read that in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that he's the image of the invisible God and the exact representation of his being. He's the word, he's the logos made flesh. He's the creator and the sustainer of creation He's the unique Son of God, and He's indeed God the Son. We know that our salvation rests on this reality. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. As a human, He alone lived the righteous life we could not, and as God, He alone could bear the punishment our sins deserve on the cross. We recognize that He is both fully human and fully God. Not only do Muslims not believe in the divinity of Jesus, another thing they don't believe about Jesus is that he died on a cross. They deny the crucifixion. According to Surah 4, they believe he was not crucified on the cross. You can look at it with your, in your notes with me. It says this, And for their saying, speaking of the Jews, Indeed, we have killed the Messiah Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah, they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him. 
but another was made to resemble him to them. Did you catch that? And indeed, those who differ over it are in doubt about it. They have no knowledge of it except of the following of assumption. And they did not kill him for certain. Rather, Allah raised him to himself. And ever is Allah exalted in might and wise. And there is none from the people of the scripture, but that he will surely believe in Jesus before his death. And on the day of resurrection, he will be against them a witness. Jesus will be against them a witness. Commenting on the above passage, Yusuf Ali writes, The end of the life of Jesus on earth is as much involved in mystery as his birth. The Quranic teaching is that Christ was not crucified or killed by the Jews, notwithstanding certain apparent circumstances, which produced that illusion in the minds of some of his enemies, that disputations, doubts, and conjectures on such matters are vain, and that he was taken up to God. He was not crucified. Someone was put in his place, and God raised him. Is their account. And this makes sense when you begin to understand how Islam thinks. James White writes of this passage, and in most of the Islamic world, Surah 4 is understood to teach what is often called the substitutionary theory. That is, on the Muslim street, you would be told this verse teaches that someone else was put in Jesus' place on the cross. Who? Well, the normal suspect is Judas of Iscariot. Others tend to believe it could have been Simon the Cyrene who helped him carry the cross. I think for the most part today, most Muslims will tell you, most Orthodox Muslims will tell you that only God knows. Only God knows who was put in his place. In any case, what's clear here is that Muslims deny the Christian teaching that Jesus offered himself as a substitute for our sin and a sacrifice who paid the penalty that all sinners owe for their transgressions. It's an, it's an irreconcilable difference between Islam and Christianity. And it's an event, it's funny enough, the crucifixion is actually an event considered by the great majority of humankind to be an uncontested fact in history. So which begs the question, why would they deny this? Why would a Muslim deny and reject the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Sir Norm Anderson explains the Quranic motivation for this denial. It's a quote in your notes here. The rationale of this is that the Quran regularly reports that earlier prophets, that is, prophets before Jesus, had at first encountered resistance, unbelief, antagonism, and persecution. Other prophets, they experienced resistance and persecution. But finally... The prophets had been vindicated and their opponents put to shame. Jesus isn't going to be put to shame. The opponents will be. God had intervened on their behalf. So Jesus, accepted in the Quran as one of the greatest prophets, could not have been left to his enemies. Instead, God must have intervened and frustrated their evil purpose. If Jesus had been allowed to die in this cruel and shameful way, then God himself must have failed. That's an impossible thought for the Muslim. Jesus is a prophet. Prophets will not be put to shame. 
if Jesus really died on the cross, then God failed. That's what motivates Muslims to agree with the Quran that Jesus was not truly crucified. As Christians, we know that his sacrifice is both real and, guys, it's necessary. It's necessary. Apart from his sinless offering, no one can have their sins forgiven. Only the perfect sacrifice of Jesus can satisfy all of God's holy demands for atonement. And unless our Muslim friends trust in that sacrifice, they cannot be reconciled to God. They are still in their sins and cannot obtain salvation. Okay, which leads to my last question. What do Muslims believe about salvation? We've talked about what they believe about God. What do Muslims believe about humanity and sin? What do they believe about Jesus Christ? Right? He's, he's not the Son of God and he wasn't crucified. What do they believe about salvation then? I mean, how is a Muslim saved? In their minds, what are they entrusting their souls to? What are they setting their hope in if they believe these realities? How does a Muslim think he or she gets saved? As Christians, we know it's through the repentance of sins and faith in Jesus Christ. But what do Muslims believe? Interestingly, Muslims use the same terms, repentance and faith, yet with very different meanings. Thabiti Anyabwile writes, Muslims use the term repentance to refer either to the conversion of non-Muslims to Islam, so they use it as reference to conversion, or of Muslims themselves turning to God. Notice not turning away from their sin, but just turning to God, doing good things for God. In Islam, men and women are called to repent because they are too weak to obey Allah's commands. It's basically a call to do better. The repentance must be genuine in order for Allah to accept it, by the way. But it's unclear what things require repentance since Muslim theologians make a distinction between major and minor sins. All Muslims agree that repentance for major sin is necessary. But some say minor sins do not require true repentance. So Muslims repent, but essentially because they are too weak to follow Allah's commands and are not clear on what sins should be repented of and what should not. As far as faith goes, it's confusing as well what they believe. I don't have time to get into all of it, but here's ultimately what it rests on is Muslims' obedience to God. Their faith rests on their obedience to God. Not sure what they should exactly obey in terms of major or minor sins, but they must obey Allah. A Muslim is depending on his or her good works for salvation. And those good works hang, listen to this, they, they hang in the balance of scales. The Quran has a balance of scales. James White writes, For many in the Islamic world, the essence of the Quran's view of salvation can be summed up in its teaching about the scales, which will be brought forth on the day of judgment to weigh the good and the bad. Surah 2147 says, And we set up a just balance of scales for the day of resurrection. Thus no soul will be treated unjustly. Even though it be the weight of a mustard seed, we shall bring it forth to be weighed, and our reckoning will suffice. Each person 
will be treated with absolute justice. Remember that because we're about to see something that contradicts that statement. Will be treated with absolute justice. For Muslims, this is sufficient. Good works, faith in Allah and the Quran, right? They confess the Shahada, right? You guys remember that personal statement of belief? There's no God but Allah and Muhammad is the prophet of Allah. This is the essence of salvation for the Muslim. Basically, it's seek to make your scales heavy with good deeds and avoid the bottomless pit filled with raging fire. Seek to make the scale heavy with good deeds. Make the pilgrimage, do the fasting, do the prayers, be charitable. Confess the shahada. However, what makes obtaining salvation even more confusing and tricky is the fact that the Quran gives evidence of a concept of salvation by God's mercy and grace. All right, you, ju- you guys just heard. Allah demands this, obey it. Muslims believe that you do that to obtain salvation. Then, you read in the Quran, a surah referring to God's mercy and grace. I'll tell you a little bit why this is tricky and confusing. Let's look at the surah first. O you who believe, this is 2421. O you who believe, follow not the steps of the devil. Surely he will enjoin on him what is indecent and blameworthy. Had it not been for Allah's grace and his mercy to you, none of you would have ever been purified. But Allah causes whom he will to be purified, and Allah is hearer and knowing. If it, had it not been for Allah's grace and his mercy to you, none of you would have ever been purified. Here's the tricky part. Here's the question we must ask. How can Allah be holy and just while at the same time act arbitrarily and mercifully forgive some sins for which He provides no basis for? I'm going to punish your sins because I'm holy and just, but I'll show mercy and grace too. How can He show mercy and grace? And not cease to be holy and just. Right? I mean, is a judge just if he lets the guilty go free? No, that's not justice. Crimes require a penalty. And to just act arbitrarily and say it's okay. Well, just forget, you know, it's okay. I choose to let you go. That's not justice. That judge would cease to be just. God is a holy and just judge. How can he act mercifully and gracious without a basis for salvation? That's the question. Wouldn't he cease to be holy if he chooses not to punish man? Wouldn't he cease to be holy if he chooses not to punish unholiness? Wouldn't he cease to be just if he chooses not to punish injustice? Yes. So how does this get reconciled in Islam? It's, it's the same reality for Christianity, by the way. But it gets reconciled in Christianity. How does this get reconciled in Islam? I remember back in 2008, I, um, I had an opportunity to go to South Africa and, and work on a college campus called the University of KwaZulu-Natal, and there were a lot of Muslim students on that campus. And I remember asking a Muslim student this very same question. 
And uh, I'll never forget the answer he gave me. And it's, it's an answer that many Muslims are banking on because they know, I can't, I can't live up to Allah's standards. Some of them are convinced they are, some of them try, but there's a reality. Humans are weak and sinful. And so they're banking on this. This guy looked at me, he's smoking a cigarette, he's got a beer in the other hand. Obviously, he's not, he's not seeking to obey the Quran. And here's what he's banking on. What he, t- what he told me is basically a story that many Muslims tell and that they bank on. It's a, it's a story of a mass murderer who killed 99 people. You see, Jason, there's this mass murderer. You must not have heard about this. He killed 99 people, and yet after he died, he found mercy from God. James White tells the story well, and so I'll read it from his book here. It says this, Muhammad told of a man from the sons of Israel who had committed 99 murders. Having done so, he set out asking whether his repentance could ever be accepted. He came upon a monk and asked this vital question. The monk said no, and so the man killed the monk as well. For an even hundred victims. He then approached a scholar. This, this is, guys, this is not just folklore. This is stuff. This is basis for salvation for the Muslim. He then approached a scholar and asked the same question. The scholar told him to go to a village where wise people would instruct him in what he had to do for his repentance to be accepted. And so he set out. He set out to a village to find wise people. Unfortunately for him, the point of his death came as he was traveling. Islamic belief in the set date and hour of one's death comes into play here. The angels of mercy from paradise and the angels of punishment from the fire came to claim his soul and they argued over him. The angels of punishment seemed to have the easier argument. He killed a hundred persons and has no good works. But the angels of mercy retorted. He was on his way to learn about repentance. He was on his way. So Allah decreed, God steps in. Hey, hey, okay, I'll settle this. Allah decreed that they were to measure the distance the man had traveled from the city where he began and compare it to the distance to the city which he was traveling. If he was one cubit closer to where he intended to learn about repentance, he would go to paradise. Then Allah intervened even more and caused the earth to shrink between the man and the city so that he was found to be one cubit closer. And the angels of mercy took him to paradise. From this belief, guys, forgiveness and mercy flows not from a basis for salvation, but from God's arbitrary power alone. Which means God would act capriciously, and therefore, God would cease to be holy. God must act in a holy and just way. Yet he acts capriciously here. God must punish sin. To not punish sin, one would cease to be holy. James White goes on to sum up the difference between Muslims and Christians here. It's the last quote in your notes there. The Muslims claim 
is that God can forgive without reference to his law's completion and without regard for the demonstration of his righteousness. Christians believe the glory of God's forgiveness is found in its fulfillment of his desire to express his love, mercy, and grace while simultaneously providing an awesome display of his essential justice, righteousness, and holiness. Where do we see that on display? God's holiness and justice meeting his mercy and grace in the cross. This leads Christians to confess the truth of the incarnation. For only in the God-man can the full spectrum of God's attributes be displayed. In the cross where the God-man voluntarily takes on the sins of his people, the complete fulfillment of God's righteousness, including his wrath against sin and the holiness of his law, meets his overwhelming mercy, grace, and love in this one act of self-giving and redemption. We see in this one reality then a place where the divergence between Christianity and Islam is wide, deep, and definitional. In Islam, forgiveness is an impersonal act of arbitrary power. In Christianity, forgiveness is a personal act of purposeful and powerful, yet completely just and divine grace. True forgiveness cannot be obtained without Allah violating his holiness can't do that. He's got no substitute. There's no sacrifice. There's no basis for salvation. The story of the Muslim killing a hundred men and receiving mercy is just bogus. We know that not to be true. There must, there must be a mediator between God and man. Someone who can make both God just and the one who justifies as Romans tells us. And that person alone is Jesus Christ. In Christ, God acts justly by punishing sin, doesn't he? He acts justly by punishing sin. Sin requires punishment. God punishes that sin in Christ. And in Christ, God can justify and forgive sins because Jesus paid the penalty for those sins on the cross and has imputed upon Christians his righteous life. So God can justify us. God can say, not guilty to us because of Jesus. Sin's been paid. And by the way, you have a perfect righteous life. That's, that's hope. That's the only hope we humans have. Because of Jesus, a person is saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, apart for many works of righteousness. Works are required, but we can't do that. We needed somebody to do that for us. And Jesus did that. Jesus lived perfectly. He, his works were righteous. This is the only cure for the disease of sin. No other religion has it, and every human needs it. Look beyond the religions, look beyond... The beliefs, we are humans who sin, who need a Savior to be reconciled to a holy God. You encounter Muslims, that's who they are. They're humans who sin 
who need to be reconciled to a holy God. And if they are not, then they will face eternal punishment in hell forever. There's, there's no greater need our Muslim friends have, guys. And we have the hope for, for them. We have the hope to bring this to them. It's not easy. It'd be very hard. But the gospel saves. Many Muslims have come to faith in salvation in Jesus Christ. It's the power of God. They can't resist it. And we can trust God, we can trust by His Spirit as we explain these realities to them about who God really is. What, what really is true about humans and about sin? What really is true about Jesus and, and what is the only way to salvation? We can trust God's Spirit to open their eyes and open their hearts to the beauty of the gospel, to its wonder. It alone has the power to save. Amen. Guys, thanks for bearing through this. I know it's a lot of content. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for, Lord, for the life you give us here and the opportunities you give us to go and spread your good news to a lost and dying world. Thank you for bringing the gospel to us, Lord. Now help us, Father, as we think about our Muslim friends and about our neighbors to extend this gospel to them and to engage them with these truths. Bless our time this morning. Be honored in our time as we worship you. Continue to speak to us and transform us into the image of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.